Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. On today's episode, I talk with Stefan Durkan. Stefan is a professor of economic policy at the University of Oxford, where he also serves as the director of the Center for the Study of African Economies. In addition to this academic work, Stefan has served in the policy world as well, both as the chief economist at the Department for International Development and as a policy advisor to the UK's foreign secretary. Stefan recently published a great book called Gambling on Development, about the importance of an elite bargain in low-income countries for kickstarting growth and development. I hope you enjoy the show. Stefan Durkin, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Before diving into the book, you've had an interesting career in international development that straddled you know, both academia as a professor and a researcher at Oxford, as well as a policymaker and policy advisor, I think most prominently as, as the chief economist at the UK's Department for International Development, or DFID. So I had a couple questions about this first. So first, idea generation and pushing the frontier of knowledge that's involved in the research side of things requires fundamentally different skills than those required for policy implementation. And you've done both. So I wanted to ask, in your opinion, which is your comparative advantage? Yes, I'm glad you asked for a comparative advantage, not for absolute advantage here. <laughs> now, look, I was always interested in the applied side. You know, as a researcher, I was an applied researcher. You know, my first job was in the University of Addis Ababa. I ended up spending a lot of time in Ethiopia setting up a longitudinal study. I'm applied. And in a sense, once you deal with the real world in an applied and empirical sense, I think the gap going towards talking to a policymaker is a bit less. But it is a different skill set, and I, I admit to that. And also when I first joined DFID, you know, that was quite a tough learning curve where suddenly it's not about on the one hand, on the other hand, maybe this, maybe that, hedging your bets, you know, the typical academic thing. It's actually, okay, what do we do? And so it took definitely a year at least to actually get used to that. And you had a good story. I think this is at the beginning of the book where the new DFID's Secretary of International Development or Secretary of State for International Development came in and she had said to the media or something, why am I getting this job? I don't want to do this. And you had to, as either chief economist or policy advisor at the time, sit down and kind of give her the whole kind of summary of international development thought in one fell swoop and had some recommended readings and stuff. Can you tell that story a bit? Yes, it is a true story. And in the book, actually, I cleaned up the language a little bit because she allegedly, and I say allegedly, when she was offered the job, you know, the UK has this funny system where the prime minister is actually not that strong. And his main power, the main power of the prime minister is every six months moving his or her ministers around. And so this happened was one of these moments. We had a pretty good minister and then she was in another department 
this was Justin Greening, actually. I can give her a name. And so Justin Greening was called with the prime minister and offered a job to be the Secretary of State for International Development. And she said, well, I didn't go into anything politics to actually give money to poor people or something to the effect. There's a few versions in different newspapers, but it got toned down over time a little bit in the way what exactly said. But it's, it's you know, she, she seemed to have said that. And once you hear that, because, you know, there is a couple of hours between you knowing who your new boss is going to be and this person arriving in your department. So there was this total panic in the department. There is this new minister coming in and she clearly doesn't want to be here. She has no clue. It was already established. She had never been to a developing country before and she suddenly is going to run our department. So there was all this panic. And I remember an email went around by one of the director generals or maybe the policy director it was actually. And he said, can you please give some readings that she can skill up in the next few days and so on and there we were just purely coincidentally standing in the office next to hers and he had this pile of books in in his hands and i stood there as well and unknown to us she actually turned out to be standing behind us and suddenly she was there and, and the only thing he could say oh um minister maybe you should read all these books and it was like a pile of 10 books, you know, from the Paul Colliers to the Delis the Nambizamoyo, you know, Stiglitz was there, I'm sure, and, and anything, all these big people you could name. Yeah, so I kind of said, you know, or maybe I will just give you a tutorial on this. And she clearly, from her face, which initially was like total shock, you know, I have to really go and read this now <laughs> to this kind of relief to be able to be given a little session. So I gave her a couple of sessions on basic development economics. Yes, indeed, the first chapter is more or less still the same structure as the as the lecture I gave to her. And it's really interesting because, you know, there's a minister, she actually turned out to be a really good one. I mean, she was willing to learn. It's one of these nice moments. You know, this is not someone who came with formed ideas. So the fact that I could give these tutorials to her was actually quite important, I think, both for me, but also for her, actually. And she stayed for something like five years, very, very long for a minister in the UK system, and, and she was excellent. And she learned on the job, and she read more, she would ask advice, and yeah, so that was a good time for Diffie So throughout the book, there's a focus, I would say, on the importance of policy learning and experimentation. And in my experience, speaking with some public officials and government officials, policymakers and their bosses, they don't often really like the advice that says, you know, hey, you should experiment. We have a rough idea, but we don't really know what's going to work in this context. So we got to try stuff out. And also, hey, this experimentation may span more than one electoral cycle. So you may not be able to run on it in the next election. So on this point, in, in your experience, how have you communicated the importance of policy experimentation to political elites when that experimenting may not really be among their top interests? I think very unsuccessfully, I will first say. <laughs> I mean, because exactly for the reasons that you say, it is actually a really tough thing for, uh, for a policy. I mean, there's a couple of things really that's really hard dealing with politicians. So first of all, they come from a world where you can't show any weakness. You have to have a clear sense. And, you know, ideology and political narratives are central. So you need to find an entry point in their narrative to actually help them to think slightly differently without challenging them saying, you know, you are totally wrong on all this. 
And so it's actually much more to do with keeping alert to what are the windows of opportunity, either through to coincidence of stuff that happens, or actually even in the political narrative, to actually find ways of encouraging them to try to think in a slightly different way about something. I'm a strong believer in It's the officials, the technocrats, that actually very carefully need to prepare. And some, in fact, change needs to be prepared. Change cannot come simply from a conversation where you convince someone. But then actually you find an entry point when actually change can happen. And I think the politicians that I kind of admire, and probably also the ones I admire to some extent in the book, are the ones that recognize something needs to change now and then are willing to take the advice. And maybe it's in that sense is that some of the most successful cases where growth and development seems to be happening with some clearly changes in policies is from politicians supported by the technocrats taking the opportunity of maybe a crisis or some real deep point where change clearly everybody agrees something needs to change to actually willing to try it out. This whole very Chinese way where you can seemingly learn all the time is probably still much more to do with particular moments, at least at the very top, particular moments that they take the opportunity and then periods where where something can happen. Yeah. Have I ever succeeded with UK politicians? Probably in a bigger scheme of things, not necessarily, but it is also about helping them when these moments happen not to do the stupid thing, you know, not the bad decisions. I think there's probably as big a role in terms of stopping them to do the wrong things than all the time being able to lead them on some kind of path for the right things. Mm -hmm. And sort of last question before we dive into some specifics about the book. But I mean, as we've alluded to already, you've been in a lot of government and policy meetings. What are the key ingredients to an effective government meeting? And what, in your view, do meeting runners kind of most commonly get wrong? So what they most of the time get wrong is that they think that they need to, it's actually what academics so often get wrong in general, is that they are there to supply something without thinking about what the demand is. You know, you start from the demand side. You start from thinking about what are they thinking? What are the questions they're asking themselves? What is it that they do? So, so you know, a successful meeting, whether it's with a finance minister or whatever, or a vice president or something in a country, or even just a technocrat in a government setting, is to actually understand as much as you can, what are the issues they're thinking about? And it's always about these entry points. You know, you cannot go there and suggest somehow do something totally different without understanding, no, we're going this way, you know, we're going in this direction. And so you find these entry points. And that's the one thing that, I mean, I've seen also others operating very effectively in these kind of meetings. And these are the ones that very well know how to judge. What is your audience judging? What are they thinking? Sorry, how they are, what are their questions? And then you just find your entry point and you take them on a journey and then Maybe by the end of it, you've convinced them to go somewhere slightly differently or even consider something quite seriously different. But that's the biggest mistake. We are all the time thinking it's all about just they would love to hear our ideas. No, no, that's not really true. They have their ideas. They would love them to be confirmed by us as academics and advisors. So you kind of need to know how they're thinking. And if you want to change anything, first understand what they think. 
Is there a particular minister or public official to you that stands out as just an absolute rock star at great, fantastic meetings and kind of pushing an agenda forward? Well, let me actually turn it slightly differently, is that because most ministers are smart enough when they have a visitor not to be pontificating too much. You know, the ones who, who pontificate, there's no point in starting with anything. The ones that are the smart users of your advice are the ones that ask you questions. And so that I always found very interesting. Okay, so one that I worked with as a policy advisor was Rory Stewart in the UK. And he's kind of a now well-known commentator as well. And there's all kind of history of it. But because he was smart enough, he just knew exactly how to handle a bunch of academics coming into his meetings. I mean, he had these strong views and he wasn't necessarily going to change his mind. So he was a bit of a master. But that's one thing in terms of the demand side, on the minister side. But it's maybe also interesting, you know, who have I seen over the years that are really effective in giving advice to governments? And the one that I've learned probably most from in terms of style, I'm not going to say in content, but it's actually Paul Collier, who people are sometimes surprised. Why is it that virtually every African leader, every African government of, on the democratic or the democratic side, they all seem to love him and they seem to like it. Every single prime minister in the UK, they seem to have in the last 15 years had links with Paul Collier. And it's a lot to do because he is very, very smart in very quickly sussing out how his audience, how they're thinking. It doesn't come across like it, and it looks, and it will feel sometimes as if he pontificates, but he's really very smart to very much picking up what are they saying, what are they thinking, how do they ask me the question, and maybe then the other part of it, why they always like him, is he is one of these masters of, and these are the three things you need to do, which is that other clever thing by always being propositional. So is any... Anyone, when you go into a meeting, if you don't in the end, if you simply give commentary, it's been useless. If you propose something, even if they don't take it, people who took the meeting will find it quite satisfactory because you actually are willing to propose something and say, ah, oh, something to think about. And he was always smart. He had three things of which one probably was absolutely something they couldn't do. Another thing was actually something a bit challenging, and, and a third one was very obvious. So they felt comfortable because there were obvious things that they could do, and he was clearly probably focusing on the middle bit, the one that actually is a bit challenging, but probably is quite interesting. And so these leaders, these politicians come out of meetings with him thinking, oh, wow, this is really useful, and yeah, he agreed with us that we should be doing that, and this is worth them thinking about. Yeah. And I remember just on like maybe an example of a less effective meeting you talked about in the book. And the book is just great for this insight in and of itself is just like insight into a bunch of government meetings you've been part of throughout the years at, at the high level. But I think when Hernando de Soto and his thing about really the centrality of property rights, and he was invited him and his team to the UK to present on property rights and what they're working on. And when asked like, okay, Hernando, like, what do we specifically need to do then? Like, what are the policy priorities? He said, well, you just hire us for hundreds of dollars in consulting fees, and we'll we'll do it for you, right? <laughs> Less effective approach. Absolutely. And I must say, he probably has such a thick skin, he will not have remembered it. But there was I mean, it was so embarrassing. It was so embarrassing because 
of course, he was representing an ideology as well that fit so well with the politicians in the room. And they had set it up as this big meeting and getting to see the prime minister and all the kind of things. And that was all he could come up with was just actually it was just embarrassing. I hope for him that it's not the way he usually works because it's not the way to do it. Yeah. Okay. Lesson learned. Go Paul Collier's route, not the DeSoto route. Okay, with that, let's jump into some questions about the book. So the book, Gambling on Development, it makes the argument that some countries are successful in attaining good development outcomes because their elites have come to a bargain that commits them to growth and development. And on the flip side, other countries fail because that elite bargain towards development is, is absent. And so this development bargain is, is kind of the key to explaining the takeoff of, of some countries and the stagnation of others. So I think maybe in order first to make this concrete for listeners, it'd be great to start with a few examples. And you write in the book about sitting in two sets of meetings in 2013. One set of meetings was in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and the other set was in Ethiopia, both presenting sort of their respective national development plans. So how does your framework of a development bargain among elites play into the plans, the development plans that were presented to you in the DRC and in Ethiopia back in 2013? Yes, it was incredibly striking in the way it went about. So First, I was in the DRC, and you're sitting in a room. This is in the prime minister's office. You're sitting in a room, and they present the perfect plan. Actually, for every sector, agriculture, investment, climate, infrastructure, education, health. And I kind of sit there for three, four hours in these meetings, and one after the other, they present their plans. And I say, look, this is actually really brilliant. I mean, this is really good, you know. And whether you were a World Bank official or an academic, you said, look, this is actually not saying it's perfect in everything, but it was very reasonable, sensible from the context they have, something that you say, wow, that would be amazing if they could pull this off. And I remember going, coming out of this meeting and saying to a colleague, wasn't this an amazing piece of theater we've seen here? Like one big show. And he immediately agreed. And, and the reason was, of course, that the DRC, and in fact, we had only a few days before, we had had a few meetings, you know, the DRC rarely if ever even approves its budget. So you, we were at that time in month 11 of a 12-month budget cycle, and they, and the budget minister had the day before told me, like, very excitedly, we may get the budget approved by the end of the month. So like one month to spend your whole government budget. And none of these things mattered. So there's nothing there. In contrast, in Ethiopia, we sitting in meetings, and arguably this was more high level. There was Minister of Finance there, there was the Governor of Central Bank, several of the Prime Minister's economic advisors, and they were all mixture of technocrats and political players. And this was actually a meeting, and in fact, we were with a few others. Land Pritchett was there, Justin Lin was there, Paul Collier was actually there as well. Very diverse set, and it was actually kind of a, an event, a couple of days, that they had wanted to organize to get it scrutinized by outside experts, getting some comments in a, in, a, in a kind of closed setting. And I remember, you know, each of these bits and pieces were very imperfect in the sense of even basic economic understanding. And in many of the things, you know, different, not always that we always agreed as the outsiders, but like many things, in, really, do you really think this will work? You know, will this not get your, I don't know, investment climate, are you really going to do this? Is this really going to help? That legal framework there, that form of industrial policy, that kind of intervention in agriculture. I was all, let's say, a lot of tinkering, and it was definitely not by any type of sort of economics, kind of 
mainstream. So it's not just about whether it's neoclassical or IMF or World Bank, you know, but Land Pritchard or Justin Lin, all of us were all the time wondering about what this is. And I remember coming out of the meeting and we were talking amongst the us and, and thinking, gosh, it was actually quite tricky, but you know what? They're going to do this and they're probably going to succeed. All four of us thought this is actually quite amazing. They're going to do it. And of course, in that period, that, that decades of 2010 to 2019, it was one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing economy in the world. Now, what is really striking is clearly not the words, the exact plan, but how it fits in the framework is that why we were so convinced Ethiopia were going to do it, because that was fundamental to this government. They were fundamentally behind it, and they were all going to do all they could to make it work. And yes, they were tinkering and making not always the best economic decisions, but we knew already by then that, you know, if things derailed, they would try to find a way of correcting it and doing it. And yes, not kind of simple, either big bang liberalization or simple state-led development. They were tinkering all the time. But it was that confidence we could have that fundamentally this is what these leading elites actually wanted to do. While in the DRC, the entire government is actually show. The entire government is show because the game is not played in government, not in economic policy, not in parliament. It's basically who controls what they get from the mines and from the big mining contracts. And that's the only game in town because the rest of the economy, the government not doesn't care about or just distorts it and disrupts it all the time. You know, you have 56 government departments that are allowed to actually collect taxes, government departments that are allowed to do this in, in various ways. So it's just all quite kleptocratic and otherwise definitely very predatory, extractive kind of thing. So, and that's to do with, because yeah, they're not interested in growth. They're just interested in distributive politics, trying to get to the rents from the mining contract. A few practical questions, but the first I wanted to start with that I had while reading was around, I guess, how to identify, especially early on, the places that have a nascent development bargain emerging, right? You had this great analogy that development funders and even private investors in low-income places could be more like Warren Buffett and engage in sort of value investing in poor but high potential countries. But how do you determine on a practical level whether a country has or doesn't have an emerging development bargain and is therefore undervalued? Maybe we should ask the question to Warren Buffett as well, because clearly he succeeds and, and most of the others don't quite succeed in doing what he does. But if you think of the way he invests, he's not going to invest in obvious disaster areas, you know, firms that are clearly going nowhere. But one thing that you always observe in his portfolio and this idea of value investing is to say, well, you invest in the long for the long term, but you invest in a team that appears to be interested and willing to start making certain decisions. So is these two things coming together, clearly a team that has a long-term objective that clearly wants to achieve something, in this case, it's actually growth and development, but then actually there is a sense that they're doing the early decisions to do so. Now, the question back would be, surely, why don't I then invest in the DRC? Because they had all the perfect words and the perfect plans. So you clearly need to have bits of sense of actions, you know, behaviors and actions do matter. And it's not the first time that I've been asked the question, can you really know? Can you when can you know? Are you not going to be too late and doing that in the nascent of things? So the more I think about it is to, first of all, you're not going to say this is a place where there's a nascent development bargain 
if the only thing they do is the low-hanging fruits. You know, this low-hanging fruit stuff, I definitely don't subscribe to it because, of course, you should do this. But a low-hanging fruit is typically the fruit that don't disturb any of the other branches and nothing gets disturbed in the whole thing. You need to be willing to say, look, I'm going to try to reach for one of these higher branches and I may crack a few others in the way and do something or put it differently. You know, a country that begins to, say, address some of its vested interests, some of its structures and starts to dismantle it, even at the expense, not of its enemies, but some of its friends, is probably a good idea. So a country that, say, for example, takes seriously mining contracts, but not the mining contracts that are held by the firms that support your position, but actually the ones that actually are more linked to yours, and it's things like that. So you look for a small number of things that actually seem to be suggesting you know, you're actually quite serious because you are taking a bit of a risk here because you are actually trying to change something a bit more fundamental than something self-evidently easy. So I guess a, a related question to identification of sort of an emerging elite development bargain, I mean, just putting on our social science hats, is are there data sets out there that try and proxy for or measure the quality of the elite or something like this? And I, I was thinking about this. And a few things came to mind, like data on perhaps flights out of the country right before an election or something. This is assuming only elites in low-income countries can afford an international flight, which I think is vaguely right. I have a few other things like related to this, perhaps the level of or proportion of elites that opt to get healthcare services, for example, in Europe or North America, or the proportion of elites that send their kids to private schools in rich countries. Are there data sets like this that try and proxy for elite quality or, or an emerging elite bargain? So I don't think there are. I mean, actually, it's really interesting, the examples that you mentioned. So I was actually in another conversation. I think this was when I was in, in, in Abidjan talking, and actually someone mentioned exactly this, is that what are the plans of the children of the elite? Are the children of elite both getting their education, but especially not coming back? You know, is, is everybody in London from, from African elites or in Paris, are they or actually coming back and trying to do things? So there are things. So I don't think there's these data sets. Someone else I had a great interaction from uh, Nicaragua actually said, look, I'm actually on the back of this and he's designing a little survey and he's actually almost, and, and, and clearly I should put on Twitter some of these questions because we had a conversation about what could you actually ask to existing elites in terms of where do you see your future? And I think it's definitely a sign of an emerging elite bargain, at least for growth and probably for development, is if some of your diaspora linked to the elite, not the poor ones, but, but the elite, actually beginning to come back. And it's very striking that, you know, I would date, say, for example, in India, what happened in the 1990s, partly with the economic reforms, but also all the political parties buying into the idea of growth and, and a development narrative became much more serious in politics in India. It's actually in the noughties, you suddenly started getting far more of educated Indians deciding to actually, I can just as well go to Delhi or Bangalore and, and make a career of my future. So there's definitely something like that in the picture that I could look at. I'm thinking too here, you could even get like, because you you hinted at in your previous answer, a part of gauging whether there's an elite bargain or not is this divergence, I guess, between like rhetoric on the one hand and, and action on the other. So you could even in those questions or surveys that your Nicaraguan friend is conceiving of early on in the survey asked, like, what's your opinion on the children of elites should do or something? And then, you know, what are your children? 
Like, what are your actual kids doing? And so you get an opinion answer that may be more rhetorical and then a revealed preference later on or something like this. Okay, so you said that these development bargains among elites, they have sort of three preconditions. One is credible or durable politics. A second is a mature, sensible state. Mainly, this is kind of getting at a state that doesn't overextend itself, I guess, in the Lamp Pritchett premature load bearing sense. And the third is mechanisms for learning and correcting mistakes over time. Can you just elaborate on these preconditions a bit? If I start with the first one, so this whole idea of requiring credible politics, I mean, it, it partly talks to it that it should just not be ideology and big national statements and narratives. But another part of it is that if you think of it, you know, this minimal precondition of the state, this underlying credibility that you want to keep peace and stability is actually quite important. And so for me, that credible politics and this online shared commitment, a big part of it is to make sure that different players in the elites are not using it to destabilize, using their opportunities they have. And it's very striking, I find, that that we see this across the world. So, you know, elite players will find it always extremely easy to destabilize. You know, fragmented elites, they can very easily stoke up trouble. You know, you could get mobs on the streets. And it's actually not so hard if you if you want to cause trouble. So it's it's that first thing there. You really need to be committed to actually keep that peace and stability. And then this idea of the self-aware state, a state that doesn't overextend itself, I think that's really important because there's so much still a naive discussion when I go to different countries to say, oh, it should be market-led or state-led. And, then, and I must say the technocratic institutions like World Bank and IMF don't help that much because they seem to translate it all the time a bit like this and they don't seem to have a language to actually capturing better that state capabilities and the histories of the state and the way the states are set up in different countries is so fundamentally different that in some countries you could have the state doing more things and in other countries you really shouldn't ask them to do more things so it becomes very context specific and so it's not about an ideological position about the state versus the market, but actually being being self-aware. Let me clarify this with a very quick example, is that China, you know, state-led development, once you start thinking a little bit about the history of the state in China, you can see, well, yeah, surely if you do it anywhere, you do it there. You know, 2,000 years of centralized structures, central taxation, and a meritocratic bureaucracy historically from a very long time. You know, kind of say that's the way state and its servants, its bureaucrats, that's how it was set up. Now, you know, if you had to make some choices, well, you made the choice to do by stately development, you had a reasonable chance to get it to be successful. If you do this in Malawi, where the state is built up fundamentally since independence as a job creation scheme for whoever is in power. And, you know, there's some good civil servants there as well. I'm not saying they're not, but fundamentally it's clientelist, it's all patronage clientelist based. It's not set up with meritocracy. How do you think with, with such a short history of the state and then the way you've built it up that you actually would do state-led development? So so it becomes like, you know, there will be places where you need to do it in one way or another way. And this is in the book. I talk a lot about Bangladesh because I find it always a fascinating example because this wasn't clearly to the outside world, but also for a lot of people internally, this was for a long time and maybe still is quite a dysfunctional state. It's definitely quite corrupt. It's definitely quite clientelist in the way it's set up. It's actually been very smart in its development since the 1980s, 
not to do it state-led. You know, there's a, I was in Dhaka not so long ago, and I was questioned on this and said, no, the government took really good policies and I asked them what were these policies and said, oh, it actually stopped intervening in the fertilizer market. It stopped doing this. It stopped doing that. It undid the nationalizations, it didn't, and so on. And I said, well, that's what I mean. You know, you were smart enough that, that the other route would not have worked. So you did, of course, it's active decision making, but you at least don't overextend yourself. And then the final thing about learning, you know, learning has an element of being willing to recognize that you make errors and maybe i talk a little bit that maybe i could have done it more in the book it's actually also a lot to do with accountability and it's actually finding a learning usually needs some system of accountability either internally if it's just an internal learning process like in china internal accountability within the party if you don't deliver you will be pushed out of your post you you are really under threat and whatever and that's internal accountability there it can function very well or you have external processes where, you know, in Ghana, it did work through the way democracy got established and started functioning with transitions of power, correcting as a result any excesses because there would be a new government coming in that had to clean up what happened before. And Ghana has, as a result, in the last 25 years or so, actually been quite steady in its growth. And yes, getting in trouble, I got a moment as well. We have a certain confidence that there is an external accountability process that can help to correct it there as well. Yeah, I'm picking up on the point you raised about the likes of China with a strong history of the state. They're going to be able to do things a different way than Malawis of the world without that same state capability and state history of statehood. This comes up all the time when like CCI, we're interested in sort of new city developments and special economic zones and, and charter cities. And obviously China used zones to great effect and learned from those zones and did policy experimentation and then scaled them up. But those zones were really state-led, right? They were devolved to the local level, but they were pretty public sector-led. And then people wonder why special economic zones in Asia and China in particularly have been so successful, but SEZs in Africa have been so abysmal. And my thing is, well, China has this history of the state and they were public sector led zones. And when you attempt to do something public sector led in a place like Africa, it's probably not going to work out the same it did in, in these places with that history. And so if, if a zone regime has a higher likelihood of success, it's probably going to be because they're either through some sort of public private partnership or private sector led. That's absolutely right. And it's, of course, it's something people all the time forget with SEZs as well. Even in China, initially, it was a way of overcoming not just an infrastructure problem, but also a governance problem. You know, it's like, you know, you, you needed to find a way in a protected space to actually do a governance in a very different way. I mean, the soft infrastructure to give all kinds of attention in other things and much less to ideology. Uh, I totally agree with you. And it's that thing about thinking that we can just take China and then we'll just make a flatback version of it and we can do it everywhere where you just really, really forget it. Now, it's really interesting on SEZs, and I want to just mention it. It's not in the book, but this was the one SEZs I ever went to on the continent was, of course, then in Rwanda, where the state in a very different way established total control. And, you know, you had this perfectly clean, very subservient managers from that government department, the authority there, serving these firms. Of course, the other side you have to it, you know, given where Rwanda is, the park was half empty because, you know, 
there's not enough opportunity then to do it. So it's not as they did it smartly in China initially, near to a, a, a demand area or to the coast. It's far away then as well. But, you know, it's so exceptional. So the underlying governance idea is so central in all these things. And, yeah, we just forget that when we keep on wanting to translate something that seems to have worked in one place. And if we don't think the underlying political governance and, and the way that the underlying soft infrastructure, you know, we can't copy them simply into other places. The other point that I always bring up too, and, and again, this pertains to, I guess, cities and urbanization and zones, but it's not just kind of history of the state, but it's the timing that these things occur. And I always go over the history of urbanization in different regions and countries and say, for example, the U.S. got 50% urbanized in like 1920 at per capita incomes of 7,500 or 8,000 USD. You had South Korea 50% urbanized in the late 70s, around 4,500 USD. DRC today is kind of careening towards 50% urbanized. I think they're at 46% per capita incomes of something like $550. And so while the state via these higher incomes might have much higher capacity in the U.S. to deal with this rapid urbanization when it was undergoing urbanization. That is not going to be the case in DRC or some other African countries that are urbanizing a lot earlier in the development trajectory. No, no, absolutely, absolutely agree. And we love, and it's this kind of semi-silver bullet idea, you know, we love somehow to say there is an essence of an intervention and we cannot put it anywhere. And actually, you know, the way to think about Chinese urbanization, industrialization, it's it's like a bundled intervention. And we just must make sure we remember there's lots of parts of that bundle that we can't transport. A lot of these bundles are non-tradable. You know, we can't simply move away and, and we can't just wear. I kind of like my flat back idea. You know, it's like as if you can just reduce it. You, you can't build a beautiful piece of furniture simply in that flat back version. And it may not, it may seemingly do the same thing, but in practice, it's just so hard to put put it to flat back up in, in, in Malawi or in or in Zambia. Yeah. And we're kind of going back and forth between Asia and, and Africa here. And this is actually one of the great things I, I loved about the book is these comparisons and contrasts between those two regions. And this is, in my opinion, this is way too rare. And I think, you know, you were mainly an Africanist at the beginning of your career and the Asian work came later. You know, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on this. So how did this exposure to Asia a little later on in your career inform or, or change your mental models that you'd built up about Africa? This is a great question. And it's something I increasingly also am reflecting on. I've been incredibly lucky because I started in the worst places and then started seeing places where change actually was happening. You know, my first country in Africa that I visited, it's not even in the book, was Burkina Faso. And it was we're talking the mid-1980s. It was dreadful. It was drought. It was nothing there. It had just come to political upheaval. They had murdered his president, Akua. So everything was going wrong there. And it was so, so impoverished. And if for me, progress was then going to Tanzania, that was my PhD, in the middle of rationing, where the entire economy was imploded in the late 1980s. And I remember being excited, being able to go for a weekend to Nairobi because there was a supermarket and I could actually stock up on something. 
and I could buy something was an amazing thing. And then go and teach after the end of conflict, after my PhD as a first job in Ethiopia. So I had like this kind of some of the worst places, seeing the worst governance and economic management almost of the place, but also just the deep, deep poverty and working in rural areas made it very different. And I'm actually still very glad about it because when I was taught in Oxford, everybody would always start with India and then they would compare it to Africa. It's actually not that helpful. And it's especially, and similarly then later on going to China, it's actually really helpful to say, well, well, what can I do with these places in Africa, in a place I know well, rather than a lot of these people who did their careers first working on poverty issues in Asia and then thinking we can now transplant them into Africa. And so, so I think it's actually, that's too rare that people who know Africa to start with end up working on, on other areas. And it, it gives me definitely an, another lens on, you know, as I start the book and saying, coming into China, realizing there's actually nothing really fundamentally beyond the underlying shared commitment of the elite for development. There's nothing else that I can take away from China that I can actually find useful for Africa. And so that actually kind of take away this kind of the policies or the practices they did in Asia, oh, I can just take them to Africa and apply them. No, no, that's not the way to do it. It's just start with something else. Yeah. Although I'm going to push back on that because you did write a great paper with IGC Cities about comparing the urbanization in China and drawing lessons on that for really rapid African urbanization. And I love that paper and it was fantastic. I, I know it's not kind of strictly about the book, but because urbanization is such a huge mega trend this century and it's something CCI really cares about. Could you talk a little bit about your findings from that IGC Cities paper? Absolutely. And and I, I also want to tell you a little bit about the background of that paper, which was actually one of the most fascinating collaborations I've been involved in. This was actually came out of a partnership initially as the, from the UK when I was chief economist, managed to set that up. But then later on, others, different academics in the UK were involved with working with the Development Research Center, which sounds innocuous, but actually it is the think tank of the state council of the Chinese government. This is like the most important thinking place. You know, they will have prepared President Xi's speeches on international issues to do with development and or trade like he did at Davos at the time. These are the guys doing it. So they're very influential. And these would have been the people that were very involved in the original reforms in 1979. Anyway, so we set up a collaboration with them. And what the Chinese wanted from, from their end is to actually, this whole idea, what can the world learn from China? And what we thought, and there was actually, at that time, small amounts of money from the UK government, why don't we also use it as, as helping them and taking them on an education? And so actually, by us also working with them and writing things, very politely and very, not deeply critical, but actually taking them on a journey and saying the way you think of the rest of the world, you know, it doesn't look like China actually there. You know, you need to start thinking better about these countries in Africa. And they appreciated that, you know, it's just not about critiquing one or the other. So we got this paper and the background of it, at some point they said, look, we're quite happy to do it because they were the commissioning, the commissioners, the, the development research center, they were the commissioners to us from the paper. And they are told us we would love to have a paper on urbanization and work on industrialization. So we thought, as we would do, okay, so we have two teams. One was going to write a paper on industrialization. The other was going to write a paper on urbanization. So we end up at a 
pre-paper writing meeting in Beijing where we would discuss the concept note and so on. And there, these, these officials from that think tank, they said, look, this is awful. They said, you know, how don't you <laughs> get us that you, you one, you know, have a paper on industrialization and then you have another, I was going to do on industrialization and then another group of people was going to do on urbanization, the cities that work people would do this in. And they said, look, how can you even think that is right to do it like that? Because urbanization and industrialization are two sides of the same coin. And we sat there in this meeting and actually, let's be honest, we didn't know and we thought this is actually not the way most of the academic literature these days would write about urbanization or about industrialization. And they kept on saying, you know, here in China, that's always was two sides of the same coin. Arguably for some of the conversation we were just having, you know, in terms of what's been happening in when do they industrialize, where do you set your special economic zones and, and, and the whole thing. And it was really fascinating. So we have this one paper now on the urbanization that talks also about where do you put your special economic zones and so on, because we would never have written it if they hadn't told us. Now, that paper is trying to actually say, okay, what can Africa learn from urbanization in China? At the same time, we want to, to say, What's going on at the moment in urbanization in Africa that looks different from how it's happened in China, which was the will, the path that mm -hmm. we want to do as a bit of an education. And, and, you know, we can say which bits and pieces do we like best. But actually, if you read it carefully, you know, like everything you need to do, because it was published in the end by the, by the Chinese government as a working paper as well, you have to be a bit subtle. But we actually wanted to tell them, look, you guys, your firms that are funding urbanization and that are funding special economic zones in Africa, they're not talking to each other either. And they're actually getting the special economic zones easily five times as far from the urban cities as you have them in China. You have them place them in a very different way. Same with urbanization. You don't do it as an integrated urban development plan, but you actually do it, oh, I'll do the, the monorail and I'll have a big contract for the sewers and I don't care that they don't work together. So we actually wanted to write this paper and say urbanization at the moment in, in Africa is not even, even though you are doing a big part of it, it's not even happening in any way in the way you like to tell the world that it is happening. So there's a lot of layers to that paper. And I don't know whether that's what you liked about it, but that was definitely, for us, a really interesting thing. Again, how could we try to influence in the Chinese government a bit of their thinking by actually subtly explaining, by the way, what you do is very different from what you think in Beijing that you actually are doing in Africa. Yeah, I could go, we could go on and on on this topic and maybe we'll come back to it towards the end. But I have some more questions about the book. And this is kind of related to what we were just talking about. I want to maybe propose, I guess, a variant of your development bargain framework and just get your reaction to it. And this arose kind of both because of my work at CCI, but also because I think throughout the book, special economic zones kind of stood out as policy tools used in the takeoff of several other cases, including, right, we just talked about China, but also Vietnam, Ethiopia, a few others. You also mentioned at one point in the book, concentrating resources or aid in these pockets of excellence within the state. And so is there something to the notion of a clustered bargain or a clustered development bargain, right? We had Deng Xiaoping or Kagame or Zanawi in Ethiopia or others 
they didn't have all of the elites on board before launching their reforms. I think they opted to, in most cases, cluster those elites oriented towards growth in the right positions or in the right organizations or in particular places like the Rwandan Development Board or in special economic zones or this you know special delivery unit or something like this. And then on top of that, it's often necessary to cluster and concentrate resources just because these countries are so severely resource constrained right at the beginning and you got to prioritize necessarily. And right, so these clustered bargains then I guess provide a sort of demonstration effect. They show a new way of operating is is possible in this delimited space and they sort of demonstrate what works and by doing that open up the door for larger national or regional level reforms. So the cluster bargain, does this jive with your thinking or why or why not? No, no, I find it really, really interesting that you use that language. There's a number of things that we wouldn't have an argument with. It's very clear that in the early stages of this progress to growth and development, if you do, for example, what Malawi always does, that anything anyone suggests will do it, you're not going to get there. You know, you know, you know, any project, any outside project, whether it's a research project or a World Bank or international organization project, they always say, yes, you're not going to go. And so there is something there also in my experience in Ethiopia, I thought it was always fascinating, is that projects that donors were offering to Ethiopia, you often would, they would actually first look at it and say, can you just wait before we do this? I like this, but we want to check whether we want to make it a priority. And because if it's a priority, we do it with our own money. And the donors got all of the marginal projects. So I like that better. You know, it's like, you know, you prioritize and you do your own stuff and you really focus on that. So there is something about that aspect. I think there's also political economy, a politics part of it, why you end up doing something, what you call clustered around a few things in the way that you set it, you know, find a bit of successes and show that it works. Because as I write in the book, you know, these development bargains moving towards a much more growth-oriented, development-oriented lead bargain is longer term, and it actually is a gamble. You know, elites may lose their positions. So you need to find places that you actually do it, and you can't rock the boat with all, with everybody. You need to find a few places. So often they'll do it in something that no one else is really embedded in, and you find something to do that nobody else is doing, or actually there's not too many vested interests that are at stake, and you begin to do it. But also you need early successes. You know, and early successes, why do you need it? Because you need legitimacy for doing it. Because otherwise, there will always be someone who mistrusts you, finding a really good excuse to destabilize the elite bargain. So you kind of need to be able to play that game. So I can see that you do it in certain things. Do I do it clustered in the way you see it, that it will be always best with a special economic zone or whatever. It's not quite how Bangladesh did it. I don't think that's how Ghana does. So you look for something that works for you. And of course, Ethiopia, Rwanda are the two countries that used as a model what Korea or China did and put their eggs in that basket. But I would actually say, you know, in Ethiopia, the special economic zones, by the time actually, unfortunately, the political bargain actually unraveled, wasn't really that successful yet. In fact, their big part of their success had been through infrastructure and agriculture. And so even though they all talk about the industrial zones, but actually at that moment, until recently, it was costing largely a lot of money. 
on God's growth through the investment of the infrastructure, but it wasn't really earning that much exports. You know, we know that I think this year they may get four billion exports, but there was a time that was less than a billion. And we talked about in the hundreds of millions for exports. That's very little for a country like this. Yeah, so you will want to see this a bit, I think, in the Ethiopia case as also looking for legitimacy, being very clearly going into this other route. But what I agree with is that, you know, you can't do it all. You better get a couple of things. Special economic zones, have a, if you can pull it off, if you're in the governance of them, can pull it off in the, in the kind of discipline that you can have it, that, you know, you, you can focus your energies. Well, it's obviously one way of doing it because you, you create... Lots of people would say, both in the bureaucracy and in the economy, you need some pockets of excellence. So you increase the chance of doing it. So I'm definitely not going to say don't do it, but I'm not convinced that that's the answer for Kenya or for Tanzania in the obvious way. So just moving on, there are a few other views in the institutionalist vein that that are sort of related but distinct from your elite bargain framework. So how does your development bargain framework align with, for example, the work in political science on political settlements by scholars like Mushtaq Khan, and how does it differ? Actually, I spent a week in Bangladesh not so long ago, and actually Mushtaq was there as well. So we had endless opportunity to debate, and both of us got an all-the-time challenge Bangladeshi academics who kept on asking about Lenin and Marx, which was then other kinds of things, you know. (laughs) And so in this kind of discussion, I think there is an element of there's commonalities, commonalities, of course. You know, I don't use the terminology of political settlements probably for two reasons, because I don't like the word political as the only word and the word settlement. So actually, the terminology worries me a little bit. And the political part of it is that it risks under understating that the economy is so central to this, and not just for rent-seeking behavior, but also the economic the way you run your economy, manage your economy, and not just about the distribution of rents, but but more than that. So there's a bit more economics into it. There's also a little bit on the settlement, and that's just on the language, that it makes it sound as if it is settled. Okay, And there is something a little bit more potentially unstable or stability that needs to be confirmed on the idea of a bargain. You know, there's somehow, is that equilibrium going to keep position or not? Where it probably differs a little bit but then again, you know, the literature and political settlement goes in all kinds of, of directions in the way what they consider in it or not. But where it differs a little bit is the emphasis on the numerous sets of, of paths by which this can be maintained, but also this kind of clear sense that at any moment in time, there are actually multiple equilibria. You know, there is not just a single equilibria. So the settlement idea has a little bit, you know, I remember at some point examining a PhD thesis on a particular country, and if I said so, the person would be upset. So on a particular country where we have a big argument, and the argument was really that particular coup was the only political settlement possible at that time. And that kind of thing, you know, there's endless coups that succeed because of some coincidences, or they just managed to succeed or not, or forces move against them, or they're just lucky that they succeed or whatever. So, I mean, there is that's not the way we should look at that. There's at any moment in time clearly multiple outcomes And we can, in most bits of history, there's a lot of agency that others could have been obtained. And so the settlement idea, there's that single equilibrium, and now it's stuck, and everything will be there. But yeah, no, it's definitely, and obviously, I should actually say a lot of the research was funded by different economists, so I knew all the time about 
where we're commissioning, discussing it. And, you know, it was very actively used inside DFID in a very applied way. So I'll definitely acknowledge that they, they influenced it. Another related book is North Wallace and Wine Gas, Violence and Social Orders, which is also, I mean, predominantly about elite bargaining. But to me, their book was more about sustaining long run growth, whereas yours very, very much focuses on kickstarting takeoff growth, which are two fundamentally different things. So that's kind of settled. But let's turn to Asimoglu and Robinson's kind of Why Nations Fail about the centrality of inclusive institutions. So how is your argument kind of distinct from theirs? When you read Why Nations Fail, and you know, it's excellent work and the research behind it, of course, there's lots of interesting stuff there. But the way they treat institutions, and that's a bit of a, the way institutions are often discussed in the literature, they are discussed as things that are shaped through history that have this kind of longer-term, slow formation. And especially if you read Why Nations Fail, then you know it sometimes feels a bit like if you didn't have British history or a derivative of it, i.e. American history, you're stuffed. That's it. You had the wrong history. And, and so what I find unsatisfactory about it is that what is demanded of institutions is an enormous amount of settled rule of law that is perfect, uh, governance that is in a particular form, a uh, political system that, uh, that takes a particular shape, everything. So it's kind of a bit of, as a flavor of Fukuyama, kind of, you know, it's all settled, it's all sorted. And the only advice you then can give to a government, like in Bangladesh, is to tell them, well, I'm sorry, you should get yourself a better history because your institutions are imperfect. And I think my argument is that we can get quite far in growth and development, not necessarily in a society that I would find wonderful, but in growth and development within all that imperfection. And I think Leonard Wanshakon, when he gave the Christmas lecture at Yale, he actually had a very simple point and he said, you know, it's 50% history. So the situations we have in a particular country is 50% history and 50% agency. And actually, I want to emphasize, you know, within these historical constraints that every country have, and colonialism probably the biggest constraint that they have, there is agency. And some countries may be 40% only or 30%, other countries 60 or 70. But actually to understand the here and now, it's agency. And it's about actually empowering the current elite or telling the current elite, you actually can shape it. You can't hide behind history, which I get the impression in why nations fail. Yeah. Part of the reason why our podcast with Leonard went on for, I think we chatted for three and a half hours, was because he was reiterating this point over, he's very animated and passionate about this point that political agents and actors have agency in the present. It's not all about predetermined history, which is ironic because he's written some of the best kind of uh, economic history (laughs) papers, mistrust in the slave trade and stuff. But just kind of a slight pushback. Couldn't one say, right, you, you were saying maybe one of the Critiques of the Simo and Robinson thesis is, you know, all they need to do is, is get a better history. Couldn't one say a similar thing like you're saying all, all one needs to do is to sort of get better elite? And that's not quite as hard as getting a better history, but it's still, I mean, it's still pretty difficult, right? Yes. The advantage is that you can get yourself somehow actors within the elite could actually get that better elite. You know, we can't put time back. But I agree with you. And this is actually... When I was writing the book, I got actually 
more puzzled and actually and especially more amazed by the fact that actually quite a lot of countries seem to be shifting in their elite bargain over time. And the cynic in me would still say is that because they probably knew that they needed legitimacy one way or another, and they needed to adjust and adapt. And that's maybe, you know, maybe there is a little bit of Fukuyama in me as well in terms of there is somehow a push of history that actually you can't keep in power unless you find some form of legitimizing behavior on the part of the elite. And actually doing this by growth and development also, for example, may well be easier than doing this by giving political power totally away or abolish inheritance rights that keeps you rich if you had a rich ancestor in the 13th century. So there's maybe ways that you can actually move and actually think I can sustain it. And of course, there are these papers, you know, and recently, I forget the authors now, where it was like democracy by mistake or by chance. And this kind of idea that, you know, somehow elites at some point allow certain things to happen, thinking that it's a way of containing a current situation, but actually change the course of history. And of course, we see that in Britain, for example, after each of the world wars, where you actually get very big changes happening in general suffrage and in the, in the, the setting up the National Health Service, very important changes in the direction of the country after the first and then respectively the second world war, that actually you get these moments that the elites make these choices in ways that they haven't really realized how it changes your country. So there is something there. And it makes me amazed that, that actually quite a lot of them do it. That makes sense. And I think I'm partial to your explanation over, over you know, Asimo Boone Robinson, because my reading is that it's the people behind the law and the institutions that give those laws and institutions meaning and life and teeth. And just, I mean, this is, comes from some experiences. By way of example, we at CCI are in the middle of a review of global special economic zone laws from around the world. And I reviewed as part of this Sengen's SEZ law, expecting this beacon of legal clarity and rationality. And it was horrible. Like the law, the law was vague. Lots of aspects kind of remained unclear. Many important factors were just completely absent. But Shenzhen itself was a huge, huge, astounding kind of country changing success story. So what I took from that is that all of that legal code, the so-called you know letter of the law, mattered less than the people animating the law, the, the spirit of the law, which I think is maybe a key distinction between your book and why nations fail. Which is actually striking because, you know, the way Douglas North originally was describing institutions by talking about the norms and values and that whole thing, somehow on the way that got a bit lost <laughs> because norms and values are only there as a collective action equilibrium amongst people that are living now, you know, you can't go back to history with your norms and values. And, you know, those, those, uh, you know, following UK politics, you know, that these are these, uh, what happened in recent times, where actually, it was all the time about, can we keep up these norms and values in public life and in, in politics? And how do they get challenged, you know, and the law has no meaning, because it's not totally clear about many of these things. It's the norms and values of the way you do politics in the way. And that, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not surprised by what you say. And I find it, yeah, a bit surprising that that doesn't come out more in at least the why nations fail. You know, in their more recent book, there is a bit more of that. Yeah. 
the narrow corridor brings in culture and yeah. Exactly. There is a little bit more in that and I, and I probably should have acknowledged it and I'll be honest, I haven't fully read it by the time I was, I was, I was <laughs> writing this. So we've talked about this a bit, but I wanted to, because it's important about the factors that make the emergence of a development bargain more likely. We talked about the preconditions, but kind of factors of driving emergence are kind of distinct. One you mentioned is this window of opportunity created when a country is coming out of a conflict or some other extreme event, like you meant Britain in the wars or the cultural revolution in China, the Rwandan genocide. A second is the quest by elites to gain legitimacy, which can usually stem from conflict or, or these extreme events. And then a third factor you mentioned is just the foresight that a better, more lucrative elite bargain is possible for elites that opt to pursue growth, especially over the long run. And this last one struck me as similar to some points made by Yuan Yuan Ang and, and a few others, right? Ang in her 2016 book on how China escaped poverty is absolutely fantastic. And she talked about profit sharing and franchising the Chinese bureaucracy, where the CCP actually connected those bureaucrats who exceeded growth targets with money in their pockets, right? Essentially aligning incentives by basically paying them off. And you could say sort of the pay for performance is a scaled down version of this or countries like Singapore simply paying bureaucrats much higher salaries than is typical for the public sector. So what's your stance on this to get elites to gamble on development in the first place? Should we just kind of pay them off? Does this make the gamble more enticing? Well, this can go in a couple of different ways. So there is an issue here about not putting the cart in front of the horse. Because in China, if we go back to China, the underlying deep commitment by the, of the leadership to make this successful was there. So they wanted to just find ways of structuring it. And then, you know, the profit sharing idea is that we take everybody along in this. But I'm actually pretty sure that many of these officials had also an underlying commitment to be quite successful. So it was a bit like you do the action and there is a payoff for it. I don't think. The way I would think of it is that the entire system was only everybody in the whole system was deeply selfish <laughs> and not wanting to have actually that, that longer term success. And the only thing they were interested in, in their pay pockets, you know, this, it's a bit like these contracts pay for performance are usually quite incomplete. And you'll need something to make them complete, is probably the argument I want to make. So if you then go into Indonesia, I don't think it would have worked. And clearly, you needed alternative ways to keep the whole elite to still be aligned. Now, actually, there's maybe an element of it, is that if you go to Indonesia in the early 70s, you seem to have this very striking thing of the old elite that didn't give legitimacy to Suharto when he got power, because they were very much still in favor of Sukarno and they really didn't like the fact that the independence hero had been kicked away. They were allowed to be still quite corrupt in their handling and the management of state-owned enterprises. But meanwhile, space was created for a new elite to emerge and so to actually create something that is productive. So in some sense, the system was set up that there wasn't a productive part to it as well. And to actually getting the incentives to get you know people to do it from quite legitimate activity, if I put it like this. So just 
paying them off, I'm not entirely sure, say in Singapore, was a bit of a scary place as well. You know, it was not just you're going to be paid an awful lot of money for now. You know, just think of the contrast. They did that recently in Indonesia. They thought teachers were not performing because they were not paid enough and it became one of the election campaign issues. After the election, they got something like, you know, they were promised double, but I think in practice like 30, 40% increase in the salaries of the teaching salaries and actually performance hasn't changed at all so this is just purely a windfall so you know you, you we should just be careful of that's the way you do it i'm still actually quite convinced you'll need somehow or another a clear something that drives them you can't simply pay them to do it you know it needs to be it drive them either maybe it's the fear of losing power or the genuine commitment that we'll need to do something else or maybe linked to that after coming out of conflict, or indeed kind of a real sense, this is not enough for us. We need to really build this up. And I think the building up needs to become before, I think, just pay for performance is just going to happen. I don't know. I want to think a bit more about it, but I find it a little bit too easy to simply say as long as we set in every country pay performance in it. And it has to do with that incomplete contracting. You know, we know about all these forms of payment by results. Why is it in the end typically only possible in very specific niches? Is that most of the outcomes are not easily measurable, not easily contractable in the end. So you need somehow, and I think that's the underlying model I think of my book, it's to do with the objective functions. There's nothing in the contracting itself that can overcome that the objective function, if that objective function is totally screwed, there's no contracting that will change that, that objective function. Yeah, I remember listening to Lamp Pritchett and Chris Blattman called him like the Mark Twain of development people because he comes up with these great pithy sayings. And it's true here because he said, you can't make Pinocchio a real boy by adding more strings, which is this great way of saying like, sure, there's extrinsic motivation, but if you don't have the intrinsic motivation, nothing's going to follow. Exactly. I will steal that from now on. And it seems to be exactly right. You know, and it is this is what I actually tell all the time also in audiences like in, in the diffits and so on and uh, in the aid in the aid business as well. You know, there's no amount of conditionality that will change the objective function of leadership of, of leaders in country. Either you have it or you don't. And there's no amount of conditions, preconditions, payment by results, whatever results based finance that fundamentally will change that. Okay, so you write in the book, and I'm going to quote, high levels and fast growth of GDP per capita have no doubt made broader progress and development more achievable, but in themselves, they are not sufficient. But no societies appear to have achieved sustained reductions in poverty without substantial GDP growth, suggesting GDP growth is necessary. So against this, I just talked about Lant Prichette. So kind of against this, Lant Prichette just published a new paper that basically says only economic growth is both necessary and sufficient for poverty alleviation at scale. So I guess, given the quote, why do you think Lantis is incorrect on this point? It's an interesting thing because he makes an empirical statement. I'm actually making a principle statement is that, that countries will have done things. There's no country that, that will have been able to sustain the longer term growth either by actually also doing some of these other things. And, you know, we know the research that if your inequality gets too high, too extreme, even the IMF has a paper that basically says then growth will not be high and, and, and so on. So there is not there. And I think 
you know, it's it's that use of necessary sufficient. You know, it's like there's a bit of the Lucas critique kind of argument you can make on Lansing. If we empirically see this, it doesn't mean that the right policy advises only pursue growth. So I don't want to now go to DRC and saying, as long as you now extract at a higher rate your natural resources, everything will be fine. You know, and that's probably where I'm alluding to, is to actually saying that you can't just, you'll have to do other things as well. And I think Lance's point is, yeah, it's actually, I would apply the Lucas critique for it. The fact that he empirically has seen it doesn't mean that the next country that only pursues growth will indeed achieve his results. Because I think all the countries that have pursued it realize that actually to pursue it, they better kept some other things going as well, either to keep political economy arguments going or to get your health and education, your workforce over time and so on. So there's enough functional reasons to do some other policies than just focusing on growth. He goes against actually much more. He, he used to be really cross. He liked Diffit and he would, anytime we asked him, he would come. And, and of course, Land is the great entertainer of applied development. And, you know, he bring him in, he motivates people, he excites people and makes them interested. But the one thing he would, every time he came, and he would come easily once or twice a year talking to all the economists, and he would always say, but you're totally wrong by prioritizing your money on poverty. You know, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And I think that's, that's in a way his mission. And he's right and wrong at the same time. But in any case, a country could never do it by uh, where we agree, by just focusing on poverty reduction or something. You know, you need to get that growth going. So we are, we're not that far apart. But I would question, using a Lucas critique, that his policy advice here is that sensible. Yeah. And I should clarify to you and your book, you're obviously fans of economic growth as probably the key thing that can alleviate poverty at scale. And so, yeah, you're, you're closer together than others. But I think this is, and, and back to Lant, he has critiqued other things in development, including the sort of focus on RCTs, right? So this focus on growth is in contrast to many of the, we could call them RCTers or, or randomistas out there. I remember listening to a podcast with, for example, Esther Duflo, where she was asked about growth and she responded that she actually doesn't think that much about growth, which was just pretty surprising to me coming from, you know, one of the world's foremost development experts. One of the reasons I think this focus on intervening in RCTable programs and interventions is it inspires philanthropy and other funding entities like a different to sort of maybe in some instances have the blinders on and focus only on those RCT tested programs. I'm thinking, for example, GiveWell and some of the other global development side of effective altruism. I don't know if you've read some of the effective altruist readings out there. They focus a ton on RCTable interventions in health, but I think too little on accelerating economic growth. And I know you've done you know, RCTs in the past, but you also pretty resoundingly favor increased growth. How do you recommend funders proceed with this trade-off on which to prioritize? So yeah, so I'm pretty schizophrenic, isn't it? Because most of my ongoing research has nothing to do with growth, really, and it's largely to do with doing RCTs. There's a lot in the things that you said. So it's actually helpful to understand why for funders, so RCTs proved, you know, very attractive. And there was something, you know, I come out of a tradition that, you know, doing empirical work before we 
really started thinking about identification and causality and so on. And, you know, they did a quite a remarkable job and the Nobel Prize winners, Langrist uh, and Inders and so on also, you know, that was very important. And actually, you know, we should raise the bar as a research tool in terms of saying, does A lead to B to C, you know, and, and, and it's an important endeavor. And, and, and science often makes progress by answering small questions really precisely. And that's in the sense that they're doing. The jump to policy is the one that I found much harder uh, to take and with you know, all, all due respect to, to Esther and, and, and others on it, is that I saw the political economy that playing inside agencies. And it's a very, very interesting thing because there's nothing better to go and tell to your politician to say, look, I found something where I have really high quality evidence that it works. So you're not taking any risk with all that strange money that you're sending to Tanzania or to Uganda or let alone to the DRC, places you only are scared of, you have no idea, and and in parliament you get attacked by and so on. No, we're going to only spend money on things that work. You know, there's nothing easier to tell a politician that, you know, that kind of giving that confidence and arguably, you know, Angus Deaton and so on. And at times I would also say, you know, it gives you false confidence because... To do that at scale and, you know, and, and again, you know, they don't travel that well, that easily. And you have evidence about something that may well be feasible. Then now you make the point is that it will be feasible in every setting you do it is, is, is the heart on the external validity and the translation and so on. So there is that stuff. And I can see that, strangely enough, philanthropy, despite the fact that they should be the big risk takers with their money because, you know, they don't need it anymore as... They're only accountable to themselves, really. They turn out to be even more risk-averse than your traditional donors in practice. And very strangely, they usually have made their money not based on any scientific evidence that their investments would ever work. And now they actually are the most risk-averse because they need to have full evidence on what it is. So there is there is that kind of unfortunate thing. So I wish we should recognize that big progress will come from taking some risks, okay? And someone should be willing to de-risk progress in some of these countries, okay? And maybe in the end, it needs to be the multilateral institutions or whatever, and to doing it. And I, you know, I understand the gift wells. I talk to them, you know, I provide them with information and, and this kind of organization, so I can recognize it. And, you know, we, we may be able to do a small intervention and say, look, doing this now at scale in that country that we tested it, yeah, actually, why not, you know? But of course, it's not transformational. And this is probably where, again, the difference between, and I've been trying to think about finding ways of articulating it, is that when you read, even in the in, in poor economics introduction, you know, they have this line there where they say, we can do a lot of good things in places with bad institutions just as we could do a lot of bad things in place with good institutions, is the quote. But, you know, we can do a lot of good, but good is not necessarily transformational. And growth is what will transform if we could get that. And this is, I'm also very cautious about what outsiders can do. I don't have an easy advice to say, as an outsider, as a philanthropist, you're going to be able to get growth. I really don't think philanthropy or the big international agencies in themselves can do it. For, for the reasons, again, it has to be coming in the first instance from countries that you really want to do it. But I'm quite happy for A, to do good things. And if we then go and spend on girls' education, 
I'd rather have it spent on things that we have a bit of confidence that may well actually get children to learn than things that we actually have evidence that it doesn't get children to learn. So, you know, there is a role of that stuff, but call it doing good. You know, gift well is gift well for good. And and this is a bit of the problem. It's altruism, you know, and it's great. But it's about, you know, I want to do good things. So it's good, you know. And, of course, in every girl that you teach something, it's great every child that you have dewormed. It's great. And it's all good. But it's not the transformation that you want to have. And it's probably what I want to talk about. If And I want us not to give up on the whole idea that what we try to do in development is to transform societies that they start growing, having large-scale poverty reduction, and so on. But it doesn't mean that I say you're not allowed as an NGO or as a small organization to do some good things. It's fine. But I wish you don't forget that the big game is the former and not the latter. Yeah. And even in effective altruism, there are parts of the EA movement that are supposedly sort of more tolerant of like higher risk institutions that are willing to back uh, supposedly higher risk interventions. And still the focus, at least in the global development and health arm of this movement, is more on these kind of one-off health interventions that, as you said, do good, but it's more of a level effect rather than a growth effect. But I think that might be changing. I've heard tell that I think sometime this year they might be at least thinking about switching to one of the cause areas being economic growth in, in the global south. So that would be that would be fantastic. And it would be really interesting. And it's interesting where we would put that, you know, and it's also in the, maybe some of the things I learned in the book and also beyond. And I actually also have heard it and I've had, you know, several of the effective altruism people are in Oxford, as you know, and there's an old link here to this. And indeed, I've had conversations with them as well, not that they necessarily should listen to me. But what then becomes interesting is then you ask yourself, so where is it that the outsider can do the big change? And it's an interesting, you know, and for example, I begin to think of, well, you know, if you could get the global altruism people to actually start thinking in the spaces where they could have influence. I mean, give an example, this illicit finance, a very unlikely topic, but actually quite an important one, not simply because there's no money, the money is, is flowing out of these countries and, and should have been taxed, but actually, it's a big source of a lot of odious political finance. And say, look, if it's to do with these things, well, you know, why don't you find maybe the rate of return to actually changing something to post-book firms, post-box firms in Delaware or illicit financing from London actually could be fantastically bigger than actually some of the small do-good things. So, so yeah, it would be interesting. And it will be interesting to ask yourself, where would be the ones that you actually could do growth? Because, of course, that's the other part. As outsiders, we don't have that much good evidence that actually we can influence it. Beyond maybe, and come back to land, I always loved this paper. It was always slightly made up, I think, but it was a, was a really fun paper <laughs> because he, he basically would argue that the best development aid ever given was the support to think tanks that were interested in trade, trade liberalization in India in the 1980s, and that the rate of return to that investment massively outweighs any other spending we've ever done in India. And there is something to that, that that the thinking that in the end influenced people in Congress first in India, Congress party in India, 
so Manmohan Singh and others, and then later on all the parties, yeah, it did make a huge difference for development in India. And so, so I like this idea that there are bits and pieces maybe that in expected value have a similar rate of return in economic policy making than spending on R&D on golden rice type of things, you know, which is for every golden rice that was produced, there is endless failures in R&D in agriculture. Just like this, you know, in economic policy making, there's endless failures in influencing the thinking of policymakers, but maybe it's what we should be doing. So I would love to see what they would come up with because something in expected value may well actually be some more surprising things to focus on. So this is interesting. Let's dwell here for a bit. So you're, I mean, you're one of the global experts. You just wrote this book on growth, or at least how to accelerate growth or make it more likely that it accelerates. You know, you're given a boatload of money from the EAs to look at what kind of growth interventions you want to spend that money on. Let's brainstorm here. What are the kind of top maybe three things that you would recommend that money be spent on? It's an interesting thing because you're, of course, expecting me to say what, and I will want to spend it on the how and the groups that will make it happen. And it's actually more in the following sense, is that probably the most important, the most useful thing that we spent money on in the 1990s in Africa was probably the support we gave on central banks to build up their capacity, which is very strange. I'm not usually a big fan of capacity building. But that one was central because we suddenly got a whole bunch of technocrats in central banking in Africa that actually were very influential, also in the countries that were quite successful, to actually start doing sensible macroeconomic policy. Okay, So it's that example that I would say, okay, where would I spend it? I would probably look country by country, and it's probably actually the same advice I still give to DFID or FCBO these days, is to actually say, okay, where are the people within influential roles that if I were to find a way of strengthening their position, I get a chance of making fewer errors in economic policy and basically not doing stupid things and actually starting doing some better things. So I would look at the people, the people that inside or outside that could actually be influential. I would look at maybe the units inside and outside that I actually would put the resources on in the spirit of, you know, agricultural research centers that do applied research to invent a crop that works for drought-resistant places, I would basically have who would be the ones that I could get back, including get some diaspora, be back and set up shop in their places, but helping them. And then I would probably look for, and that's where, where I'm, I'm less precise, those things that need to be de-risked, you know, some kind of attempts. You know, you would say, maybe a special economic zone. Let's actually help to de-risk that we'll get some of these things that are successful or some serious work on anti-corruption. Let's find a way of de-risking that because that, that we actually... Creating a space for de-risked movement. Exactly, a bit of that. Exactly, exactly. It could be certain in investments, actually firms. Uh, it could be certain people that are clearly doing a bit of gamble with their own process. So I was the other day talking to Deputy Finance Minister of Uzbekistan, and we kind of agreed that where he should focus on is something and maybe get some support for is things that could 
help the president get legitimacy for the reforms they were doing. So you could have spent some money on some low-hanging fruits that there is something that they can say, look, we're actually making progress here while we're doing some tough things. But you have in mind, you know, how do I can get these things to think to move in these places? So it's not the what exactly, but there is something there very context-specific where I can do it. I'll give you an example, given I was today spending a bit of time trying to think about it, and, and I hope I won't say something really stupid. But of course, while we're recording this, Sri Lanka is unraveling, and the president and prime minister are going to resign in the coming days. I was reading a bit about what did they do, and one thing they did recently is a very crazy bit of agriculture policy making. Two years ago, they banned all the imports of chemical fertilizers. And basically, they managed to get the entire, all the way going to do it. And they had an advisor from India, and let me not name the name, but she's kind of influential and, and a kind of an anti-globalist and so on, and, and had written pieces on saying the problem with Sri Lanka was debt and chemicals. That was one of the pieces that she'd written. And basically encouraged to stop overnight to go for organic farming. And of course, agricultural output and estimates vary, but up to 50% was lost. Meanwhile, the tea exports have greatly suffered because it is apparently a multiple more expensive to try to do organically tea when you've never done it. And you know, it takes a lot of time. Basically, this is what I would do in every country. Sensible investment in people that actually can go against stupid advice. I'm not trying to promote Washington consensus. I'm very happy to get more organic farming in places and natural capital, but basically invest in places so that actually you can debunk the worst possible bits of advice that you actually keep it sensible. So, you know, these are the things that you you want to do. And you probably need quite a big team to do this because it becomes context specific. But that's what I would do. And this is where we can probably help these countries to make progress. Again, we could talk about this all day, but a few things I wanted to touch more upon with the book. So the East Asian tigers, China, Rwanda, Ethiopia, they're all either autocratic today or were autocratic during their takeoff. And you do write that, I think, while there's some evidence that democracy helps for longer run growth, it's not clear whether it's an important ingredient to spur takeoff. Do you worry then with your development bargain framework that as the authoritarian regimes in, say, China or Rwanda or others continue to deliver growth, that this could only serve to consolidate authoritarianism and and that this gives maybe these regimes more resources to perpetuate autocratic rule and, and kind of limit freedoms? I worry all the time. I worry all the time about things like that. I think I wanted to to make the statement at takeoff. I don't think the evidence tells us that one is really better than the other one. You know, when we say for the long run, you know, there's the Asimov Robinson paper in Journal of the Economy and places like that. There's Nick Cheeseman's work on from political science side and so on, and we would argue that. And I can see all the arguments why you would want to have it. But I don't think, and there is work by Tim Bessley and co-authors, that actually in terms of the mean of economic performance amongst poor countries, you know, one is not superior to the other one. You know, autocracies have um, tend to have a much higher variance in performance. So you have some really good ones, and then you probably get the Chinas and so on in the world on the good ones in terms of economic performance. Of course, it also means there's a tail on the other end, and it can go really badly wrong. And so there is an argument for external forms of accountability via democracy or open press or whatever it is 
because it at least will stop the excesses. And that's an old argument that even Amartya Sen made in the 1980s already on, on famines. So I do worry that it can be used. And the language, you know, it was an interesting thing. I was in Bangladesh and where we have such a moment where initially during the 1980s and 90s, there were clearly two parties that balanced each other out and kept some kind of political balance. It was never a functioning democracy, really in a kind of deep sense, but it was functioning enough. And then it was lots of sensible policymaking going on as part of, of that thing. Now people say it's gone quite a bit more authoritarian. And even though I was reminded the other day, the international community and the NGOs that appealed for much stable government 15 years ago, and now they have it, and now they all complained because there was, of course, a lot of instability in the politics as well. But there is that sense. And, and so the language I would use is that if you then have not a very self-aware government internally, and autocracies will find that a bit harder. They, you know, the, the China model is a tricky one to refer. And I'm not entirely convinced Kagame has it, that there is enough internal accountability, that, including knowing when something went right and something went wrong. You may need these external processes again, and you'll have it. Development bargains don't last forever. Bangladesh is very much in a phase where they need to renew it. You know, this is this has worked very well, but if more than 90% of your export is ready-made garments and you fail to diversify, you know, that growth is not going to keep on going forever. If you come to more complex policy issues like urbanization and so on, you know, you'll need to have a better functioning government and you need, you need all kinds of things. You need to renew that elite bargain and, and new things need to come. So autocracies are not very good at that renewal either because they're way call to position. So it may help to actually explain why it may peter out at some point. And one of the things I want to do is, and lots of people have asked me that, you know, how does this, what I'm saying, relate to middle income trap? And I think it relates to it, but it would be quite interesting to look at it in terms of when your system becomes more complex, will you need maybe, unless you have this kind of amazing exceptional Chinese state, historical state, Maybe you do need that internal and external forms of accountability to keep it going. So I would find it quite interesting to read a bit more, to be honest, than I don't touch on Latin America at all because I don't know that much. But one of the things I want to do is read a little bit more and see, is there something there that actually is helpful to think about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I brought this up because this is often a critique raised about charter cities and new city developments, because these new city developments, they tend to be pretty overwhelmingly in autocratic or at least semi-autocratic regimes. So my belief, and, and let me know what you think, it's that the status quo in many low or lower middle income countries, especially across Africa, is that government is often the only game in town, right? And stagnation doesn't change this. But once growth takes off, this growth empowers other non-state actors in a country, a sort of nascent middle class can emerge or a merchant or business class. And these new emerging actors as, as growth continues can increasingly make demands and often do increasingly make demands and, and concessions from the regime or the elite bargain kind of can open up and include them over time. But again, it's a thing that can happen. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, either like Barrington Moore had the thing, no democracy without the bourgeoisie thesis, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. It's, it's again, the causalities here, you know, can you, you know, and, and you, you're already qualified in saying it sometimes may or may not happen, unfortunately. So this is a bit where I'm kind of thinking is 
these renewal processes need to be there. Even an autocracy will have to renew whatever its own internal elite bargain is. And think of it in China. It's an interesting case where, you know, as seen from the Communist Party, the elite bargain is more restrictive. More power is now vested in President Xi than it was. So there is something there to say that everybody, you know, everybody will look what will happen in the autumn, whether or not a successor will be shown as one of the new of the seven people in the Central Committee, if we don't get the number right. But they kind of thinking, is a likely successor shown there or not? And that will be quite important because for observers on China, that's a sign that this elite bargain can still renew and change. I'm thinking of North Africa. You know, Tunisia, you had amazing stuff happening during autocracy. And yes, a very much a corrupt regime and so on, but they were actually growing and there was actually, call it a, a middle class that was growing and a new commercial class emerging and with tourism or whatever. It also got it run out of steam and they didn't manage to renew it. And it all got very stuck. And we feel like there is a lot of commitment of different players actually to want to make something where it's so fragmented that they can't get an elite bargain together again. So it is this hard thing is that I see it more in terms of you need to find a way that works in your country. And now I don't know what the empirics will tell me about, can you do this? So, so this is where I'm probably more sympathetic to ask the Mowgli Robinson type of point is to kind of saying when the state gets more complex, it becomes harder and harder, harder to innovate in general, and that includes to innovate in your elite bargaining and to actually let you do this. You know, we've seen Indonesia, by no means a perfect democracy, but over time, the Suharto regime come close to 97, of course, than post, democracy had to keep it together because otherwise this elite bargain wasn't going to be kept together either. You needed other things. And so there is something there, but I think it's probably, my terminology would be, you need to keep on finding ways of renewing that learning process and that probably links to the internal and external accountability mechanisms, either you're in your own system, if you can, I worry with Kagame, what will happen when he goes? You know, could you actually renew that? And then the external one probably needs to play a role because very few states are like East Asian states historically. And I, it's, I guess kind of related to this topic of whether the type of political regime is important, you could argue, you know, your focus on elites and bureaucrats and technocrats favors a sort of technocracy, right? At least at the beginning of takeoff. And I'm pretty partial to technocratic governance at the beginning stages of growth. But one potential downside I see is that the core group of highly trained technocrats in a low-income country at the early stages of its growth takeoff is going to be very small, right? And unless sort of significant time and resources are put into training up more highly educated technocrats, this core group will only be able to help resolve so many problems and bottlenecks for foreign firms, for example. So I guess is what I'm saying is that there's a scalability problem with technocracy in low-income places. Would you agree, disagree? Is there an example that pops to mind on this? I find it an interesting point you make. And and it's it's not necessarily quite what I make because actually, you know, I look, I was a chief technocrat in the government department in the UK. I will say we are essential in the running of the UK. <laughs> and actually, to be honest, I think it is crucial, you know, and having been a civil servant, a public servant and for 10 years and sitting there in a technocratic position, there is a real key role there to play, even in much more complex systems. You know, think of our regulatory authorities and so on. So we'll get get more and more of them. 
actually, my view is is that you probably need some good technocrats at any stage of development. Okay, so I'm not going to make it linked. Now, I think the autocratic point probably has more to do with the complexity of the economy that you need to handle. And it's probably more to do with that, that why it may run out of steam, why it may more easily captured and why why you get in an autocratic system poorer decision making over time without some checks and balances because it gets more complex. Okay, so let me think back on Ethiopia. And I find that actually found quite interesting over the time that I worked there. So since the early 1990s until now, so it's like 30, 30 years. And when they got into their much more determined phase of more state-led or directed government or government state-led growth, and that was around 2005, you know, I had worked with them already for a while. And initially, they clearly hadn't quite found that technocratic balance. They actually, they gave him very easily to the IMF and World Bank in the mid-1990s. Actually, they will say they took really bad advice on, on some liberalization, and I'm tempted to agree with them that it was all a bit like big bank stuff of liberalization, agricultural markets, that was actually a bit tricky there. But anyway, they slowly decided to do this. But come 2005, up to about 2020, you had easily something like 7% growth on average per year. Now, 7% of growth means that you double the size of your economy in 10 years. And so this is like one and a half times bigger economy that they were dealing with by the end. And you could see that after 2015, the economy was getting more and more complex they were actually really struggling with that kind of tinkering, their approach to policymaking, where, oh, well, we'll try it, and if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And it was actually, it became too too complex. So there is, there is something there that I'm also not surprised that their state-led run development model with actually still quite a weak state they had run out of steam, and so they had to do it now. The political liberalization that happened in 2018, even though we, we everybody likes to look very negatively at Abiy, but ultimately he liberalized politics in a dramatic way and opened up a lot and well, opened up lots of cans of worms. At the same time, the technocratic leadership was beginning to understand we actually should liberalize as well here because we are not going to be able to do this. But they were quite independent processes in some sense. You know, They could have liberalized with the autocracy but there is something to do with the technocrats. Yeah, you run out of enough technocrats to make it, except for in exceptional spaces. So I think you are probably right, is that there is somehow then. But but make this political as well, that you're going to get the political liberalization necessarily to follow. Actually, some would argue that Abi, if he hadn't liberalized politically, there would have been not been a war he would have been able to keep it. In fact, there was an argument for economic liberalization with a bit more autocracy still in his case. If you want to take that point of view, I think it was important he tried, but he did it in the wrong way. But I'm very conscious that I'm not particularly precise in answering your question, but it was a train of thought of technocrats, you'll need them, and you may, and but an agreement that you can't assume that the number of technocrats are able to do it if you fast grow or that you won't run out of steam and that you may have to do find another way of remaining a self-aware state. I mean, it comes back to the gamble part of the title, right? It's a gamble. You roll the dice and you got to be 
on your feet and I guess do what Deng Xiaoping said and cross the river by feeling the stones and adapt and change over time. So because you mentioned the last bit of your time as a policy advisor at DFID, I guess now the FCDO was quite traumatic, I think was the word you used, and now you're out of it. Is there anything you would like to say now that you are free to say it about that experience and the traumatic nature of it, especially at the end? I mean, yes, there's lots of things that I would like to say and and many of things nobody will not necessarily listen to. But my concern in this period was, is that in this kind of 10 years of working, you know, and I worked all the time with, you know, what, what are conservative governments in the UK, so center-right governments and whatever. And I'm not even British-born, don't have a party card that's never asked for and so on. But there is an underlying respect for, for advice and for technical advice and for what you're actually doing. And in these recent times of the, you know, I'm with the last prime minister, I was actually getting quite terrified how ideology became more important than quality advice. And that's to do both in the civil service where people were second-guessing the advice, what, what they wanted to hear, and then taking stronger, stronger, not very evidence-based based point of views. And so for me, the trauma is actually to do with some of the big decisions, especially in more recent times are not terribly, you know, we're losing that bit of actually being a civil service that can be impartial, that can give evidence, that is evidence-based. You know, and I always, you know, I said to the foreign secretary at some point, you know, uh, the, the old cliche is that, you know, advisors advise and ministers decide, which is I often say that in the UK, and that's actually the role. And and we are meant to be an independent civil service. So that's that's kind of I worry about it. And then, of course, it was traumatic in a sense. <laughs> My job, I agreed to join. I was asked by the foreign secretary and, you know, Dominic Raab. He treated me really perfectly correctly. Not necessarily a big vision man, a very much a small question guy and not necessarily having a big vision on the government. But he was at some point part of a government that merged DFID, a very high quality organization, I think, into the foreign office. Politically, I can understand that they have the right to do it. You know, they're elected politicians, I'm not. So I agreed to come in as an advisor. But of course, within days or weeks of me being there, they take five billion pounds, so, you know, seven billion dollars of the budget, or more 30% of the budget. And I spent my year, that's another part of trauma, is basically I've been spending my year, the first year, cutting people's budgets. And all this thing about, you know, what is the better way of spending or not? We do not have the information. You know, I basically made decisions on tens of millions of pounds taken away from one country, from another thing, from programs, from projects. You couldn't do this deeply evidence-based. So I don't want a job again where I need to cut <laughs> worthwhile public spending by $7 billion per year. So that's the trauma that I also, also have. So... I wish they take more advice and actually value technocratic advice. And on the other hand, I don't want a job again where I come into it and I basically make decisions on shall I cut a nutrition program in Yemen versus shall I take away from an education program in Ethiopia. I mean, there's people there and it's not about the implementers, but actually lives are affected and there I I think lives are lost by decisions you have to take without good information. 
we've talked a lot about the book. Last question is, what are you working on now that the book's finished and when can we expect to see it? The book actually got published very quickly in the sense that I only really finished it in September and it came out very quickly. And I was, of course, still until a Two months ago, I was working as a as an advisor in the government still. So it was like, so the first thing I've been doing is actually resting a bit. <laughs> and it was a very traumatic time to work in government under the two last foreign secretaries and this whole government imploded. But it was very intense. And I'm actually almost traumatized by the experience uh, because it was so dysfunctional in the last couple of years in politics here. But my plan is now, I have a sabbatical coming up, and I've decided uh, with my wife, we're just going to, rather than being a visitor at Yale or whatever, or somewhere hanging out in Boston, sabbatical, we're going to spend time in at least five, six countries I don't know well yet. There's a lot of actually material that I had actually for the book on some different countries. So I'm kind of wondering about it, and I may be interested in this middle income trap stuff. I may be interested in saying, look, should I take a couple of these kind of countries that are a bit further and actually see what's going on? I am trying to think a bit about it because, to be honest, I'm a bit surprised, but also, of course, I'm pleased how well the book was received because a lot of the work was actually internal diffid notes, back to the office reports that I wrote, all the chapters on countries that the first draft was essentially something I wrote simply for internal use. And uh, maybe less with the anecdotes, although some of them are there too in, in what I used to write. And it's just very interesting. And I've got another 30 of these back to the office reports that I never did anything with it. So I'm just kind of thinking what I want to do. And of course, there's academic papers that I'm still working on. I'm still working in Ethiopia, in Kenya, in other places, including actually RCTs that we were trying to finish. But there is something about... I really have an appetite on this big picture stuff. And I didn't realize that I had a relatively unique perspective simply because I was so much inside the, the working in government. And not many seem to have done this thus far. So I should, yeah, I should do a bit more of that. So more writing to come on Myanmar, on Senegal, on Mauritius, on Tanzania and so on, probably in coming months. That's probably what I'll, I'll end up doing. And how I'll bring it out, or it does a book, or just single postings, I'll see what I do. Well, if it counts for anything, my vote is transforming what can Africa learn from China's urbanization story, IGC paper, into a book, because I found it fascinating. And selfishly, it relates to my interests. So that's my vote, if it counts for anything. No, this is interesting, Curtis, because actually we still have quite a lot of work on China and Africa ongoing. And also made some good connections with Yuan Wen Ang and we're talking a little bit, not necessarily to work together, but just having a broader group of, of scholars that actually know China well. And there is actually a lot of interesting work. You know, the work got a bit stalled because of this real global, changing global geopolitical relationship. And of course, we can't travel now. So it's for me, it's the... I used to travel twice a year to China in the last 10 years, and, and so it's not been happening. And I would love to pick it up, and geopolitics is what it is, and behaviors are as they are, but there is something about we shouldn't forget to, you know, China will be there in all these countries, and better understand both what's been happening in China in development and 
what it means and what it doesn't mean for developing countries. No, I find it actually still the, the thing that excites me more. So, so I'll take this advice actually, and let's let's think a bit about doing a bit more on that because, again, because I had such an insight track sitting days and days on end with these very high-level advisors to the Chinese government and being they, they were very open and fascinating to understand how they think and finding ways of translating that. There's still something worthwhile, worth, worthwhile to do. So yes, maybe I'll do that, something like that. And then lots of things to do. Well, Stefan, Durkan, that's it for the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been fantastic. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Curtis. And this is a great podcast and I was very glad to be on it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org.